Welcome back. A big welcome back. It's been quite a while since our last episode. We took a hiatus because my co-host Joe took some time off from his career, from his life, from a lot, to travel to Israel, to Jerusalem, to study in yeshiva at Eish Torah. So before we continue the podcast, I'd like to maybe ask you a little bit about your experiences there and what you've learned from all of that and everything that you went through uh, and coming back to this moment now. Yeah, of course. I would love to talk about it. It's been it's been a pretty wild five months because I, I left mid-December. It's now mid-May. So it's been it's been wild. Yeah. So what happened? Um, so you, you you know everything that led up to me going to Yeshiva. Basically you had you had kind of pitched it and I said there's no way I could take three months off from from my life, from my career. Um, and you said, you know, just just consider it. Um, you know, if there's if there's a time that we can do it, we can make it work. And interesting things just kind of started falling in place at work. Um, where it seemed like it was obvious that this is the time to take three months off. I'll spare you all the details, uh, but yeah, it was it was obvious that this was the time to take three months off of work, and that my job would be waiting for me when I came back. And so, pretty we, fortunate. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, so, going to yeshiva, I didn't really know what to expect. I was a little bit hesitant. Um, I've never been part of this world until a year ago, it was last Pesach, sitting at your table, uh, that I had my first introduction to observant Judaism. And so I didn't know exactly what to expect. I mean, the people were just so wonderful and welcoming, um, a little too welcoming at times. I mean, they really wanted me to stay, which is, which is great. I understand entirely. But just extraordinary amount of knowledge from from all of these people and they you know they warn you about some stuff and I think I didn't take it seriously because I thought that I was an exception like what what, what were you warned about well they they tell you about how you go through like peaks and valleys and I know we've experienced it to some extent before um, I say we like I think you've seen me um, kind of do that a little bit um, but for the most part, it's been an upward trajectory ever since I started learning. And the whole time I was at Aish, I just, I was soaring. Uh, it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, and I had little mini peaks and valleys while I was there. And I thought, this must be what they're talking about. It's okay, I can handle this. Um, and so I, I came back and I was just on cloud nine. I was going. And yeah, eventually... Um, everything going on in my life, you know, going back to work full time, um, preparing to move so that I could be closer to the community, um, you know, just getting everything together and all the all the stress of all these new things that I had introduced into my life. Right. You said that because you you had recently bought a house. Right. That was outside the Jewish community, not yeah, too about, far, about three miles outside. Yeah. Right. So when you came <clears throat> back, you wanted to keep. Shabbos and be more observant and live within a community. So you moved out of your house. Right. And you moved in with a, with a single guy who lives in the neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Close friend. Uh, great guy. It's been an awesome living situation, but man, it was, it was stressful coming back three months out of the country 
to immediately coming back. I mean, Shabbos was the day after I got back. So, I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> there was just really no time for the first one. And the first one was amazing. But then it was like, okay, now do I go live in my house during the week and just come for, for each Shabbat? Uh, I said, well, that's not exactly a long-term thing. So the plan was, all right, I'm going to transition into being in, in the community. And that, along with preparing for Pesach, and now I have two homes, basically, to, to prepare for, for Pesach. And a job. And a full-time job, sometimes more than full-time. Um, and I'm trying to, to fit in davening and learning and everything on top of all that. And I, I just kind of crashed, like right there at the beginning of Pesach. And it was, uh, you were there, Baruch Hashem. Really, thank God you were there. But uh, it was it was difficult for a couple weeks. So, Right, you, you hear these things, you don't really believe it until you experience it. Because I remember I had this conversation with you, even when you were in yeshiva. I said, look, you're, gonna, you're excited now, you're, you know, you want to take a lot of this on. When you come back, it's it's gonna you're not gonna feel this way, mm. and it's gonna go away really fast. <laughs> yeah, I even said that, and, and you're like, you're like, no, it's it's already you know, it's already like that now. Yeah, well, I think I think I said something like that, like yeah, no, I I understand because I I feel that way now. Like yeah, it's kind of gone away. I'm not really on that high anymore. Right, and I'm sure you you I'm sure you believed it a hundred percent because you really felt that. You don't you don't really know what it's like until you go through it. But, you know, but any of us who have been through this journey have experienced this and it's uh, it's very common. And so w what do you take away from that? Oh man, uh, a ton. I feel at this point now, um, you know, somewhat removed from that and, and working my way back up a, a few things. One is... I finally understand what people mean when they say you can't take on everything at once. Um, you, you have to do it slowly because it's meant to be something that you can sustain and maintain even when life is stressful, even when it's difficult. God willing, I'm going to get married and have children one day. Amen. And there will be times that are easily as stressful as, as what I was going through recently. And I can't just say, well, you know, I, I can't do it. That's not an option. So you pick up the things that are most important to you. Shabbat, kosher. You add on from there. Um, and so that that's one, is that is that it's actually a journey and you can't just, no amount of motivation or discipline for that matter is going to let you teleport to the, to the finish line. So if you don't mind sharing, because it is deeply personal. Mm -hmm. Um, if if you're comfortable sharing, what what was it like to be in that place when when you were down, and then how did you get out of it? Mm. Um, all right, so I, I think it makes sense to answer them in reverse order uh, because how I got out of it is more uh, more clear to me, uh, and really something that you said helped me a great deal, and I'm. You know, I, th I thank God that, that you were there. Uh, you have to do this with a community. I, I don't think I could make it back on my own. Um, and thank you as well for being there. But 
you said basically as long as you're putting God at the center of your life or as long as you're holding on to the desire to connect to God. And I'm fortunate enough that that wasn't that wasn't under attack. I think that's I hesitate to say it's unassailable because I, I've I've learned some things in the last few months. Mm. Um, but fortunately, I was able to hold strongly onto that. And just, I want God to be the center of my life. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I mean, I've, I have this infinite creator who created the universe and put me here to accomplish a purpose. Yeah, of course, I should connect to him and try to align with his will. That part seemed obvious. But it was the rest, like, how do I actually do that? Uh, you know, what does this mean? How does it make any sense? Like, all these, uh, the minutia of kosher law was, like, really getting to me. Little things like that just were nagging at me. Uh, I was like, I just want to do what God wants me to do. Um, so holding on to that naturally pulled me out. And I wasn't doing any of the things to um, sabotage myself. Like, I wasn't holding up in my room and just, you know, sitting and watching TV. Um, cause those things like you don't, you have to give yourself a chance, you know? Um, but what it was like was it was just pure darkness, like being overtaken, overpowered by, by my Yetzirah, um, where normally I have the voice that, that tells me, you know, you are, trying to align yourself with the will of of the creator of the universe um and and that voice is strong enough to shout down most of the other stuff that tries to get in the way the obstacles uh, and this time it was just it was flipped that voice felt so tiny and everything else was just shouting in my in my head all the time uh, like what are you doing you have upended your life uh, and in this past year you are living entirely differently than you ever did before um, you made sacrifices sacrifices for sure but I mean it's so easy to see when my eyes are open my, my life has been benefited by this I mean just in in this the physical world my day-to-day -day, my mood is more regulated everything about my life is is better um, I, I enjoy myself more. I'm happier. My soul feels better and stronger. Um, so, like, my actual physical right here and now life is better. Uh, and so normally I'm completely aware of that. Uh, but this, it was like I just, I couldn't see that. It was just focused on the, I was just focused on the sacrifices. Yeah, the trouble is, and the scary thing is that normally the only thing that we have to rely on if we're not totally committed to trusting in the Torah and in rabbinic leadership then the thing that we rely on the most is our own rationale when that is what's under attack when the thing that you're thinking with is the thing that's being manipulated and distorted by the Yitzhahara mm -hmm. it's what, what hope is there yeah right, so that's where friends come in that's where you know just love and and if you have it the baseline commitments that you are unwilling to give up. And this is what imuna really is, this is what faith is. It's not about believing things blindly. It's when you've had moments of clarity in your life where you know something's true. It's undeniable. And then you reach a state where you don't have that clarity anymore. So imuna is 
living with truth, even when you don't have that clarity of it. And it's, it's difficult because it requires, and that, that's what we call it, faith. Well, and I think I was, in my mind, I had something like that, um, you know, and it was set aside and I said, okay, this is a Mona. And, and when I need it, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and access it. Uh, and, and that'll be fine. But this was so sneaky the way it operated where it was like, no, it's not that I've lost clarity. I just have a new clarity. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I was convinced that I was, I was seeing things that I didn't see before. Um, the, the arbiter of which one is true clarity has to just be in which case, um, because both of them, I could make perfectly rational arguments, I think, for why this was clarity. But one of them was clearly, and you saw this, extraordinarily negative, extraordinarily unhappy, um, and just kind of like going through the motions and not enjoying the time that I have here. Um, and and one of them is, is the exact opposite. Uh, so to some extent that has to be the arbiter uh, of which one I'm going to lean toward, which one I'm going to aim toward. Yeah, I mean, just which which kind of life do you want? <laughs> right. It's pretty simple at that point. Yeah. Okay, well, very happy that you're back. I'm sure all our listeners are happy that we're both back. And we're, without further ado, let's launch back into Torah. Thank God. We started chapter three in the last episode, and we it's a long chapter. And in fact, we might need to break this up into three sections. So this might be part two of three. But in general, this chapter is, is discussing why things happen to people, which is a pretty broad subject line. But that's really the issue. Good things, bad things. Why would someone experience something that's either good or bad or, or challenging or beneficial? Or- right. If Hashem's in control of everything, why is it not all just sunshine and rainbows all the time? Well, that's not necessarily the question. The, the question isn't that classic philosophical question. If God is benevolent and omnipotent, why isn't everything good? Why We're not really addressing that per se. We're really addressing why does Joe experience a traffic jam? Or, um, or you happen to find $100. Why did that happen to you? Right? So... The, the real question is, why do things happen in the world to people? Like, what's the system? What's it, what does it depend on? And we're going through a whole variety of factors over here. And so we're going to jump back into it and see some, some more of them until the end of the chapter. Great. Jumping back into chapter three, we have number five here. V'ulam. Min anaf echod When it comes to suffering, yisurin means it really means to endure something difficult that's probably the better translation than suffering because suffering has a bad connotation suffering implies that you're receiving it negatively it's not necessarily objective right that that's a perceived it's a subjective approach to what you're experiencing is the is the feeling of suffering so yusurin doesn't mean suffering yusurin means difficult experiences that are painful probably so one other topic that comes with Yisurin, one other reason why someone might experience Yisurin, 
It's possible that a person is righteous in general, but there are things that he has done wrong. He has sin in his hand. Or let's say he's an average person and is pretty balanced in terms of his actions around half good, half bad. And it could be that Hashem has decreed that he must go through something difficult, that the purpose of that is to inspire him to repent, to become a better person. So this is inherently different from the suffering that you would endure that is that is itself the atonement? Yes, and he's going to say that explicitly in just one moment. So therefore, from the heavens, they will challenge him. They will give him difficult and painful experiences in order that he should wake up to pay attention and start sifting through his actions and, and make an accounting of his behavior. Now he addresses the point. You just made these yisurin are not the type that are meant to be an atonement that we mentioned earlier. That the purpose of those is to wipe out sin in this world so that a person will be cleansed for the world to come and more perfected. That's not the goal of these yisurin. It's a different sort. These yisurin are the type of inspiration. To inspire the heart to repent. Because punishment is only necessary in the absence of tshuva. The real desire that Hashem has is that people shouldn't sin at all. That's obvious. But if a person does sin, that he should repent. Hashem doesn't take any pleasure in punishing the wicked. The goal for all of humanity is that we should all do the right thing, and if we don't, that we should fix it up ourselves and become perfected people. Hashem loves all of us. And if a person does not repent, then it becomes necessary for the person not to be utterly destroyed, then he can be cleansed with these kinds of punishments. So let's take the classic example of parenting as an analogy, which is a good analogy. The goal of a parent in child rearing is that the kid should become the best person that they could possibly be. And so therefore, it's the parent's job, responsibility to discipline their child if they're not behaving. So the ultimate hope for a parent is that the kid will behave properly from the very beginning. Now, if the kid doesn't, which is likely, then our hope is that the child will recognize what they did was wrong and fix their behavior. And if not, then disciplinary measures are required to get the person on the right track. should be very intuitive. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The alkane, therefore, Initially, yisurin are given to a person in order to just wake them up, to inspire the person. But if, a, if it doesn't work, if a person doesn't get the message, then the person must undergo these difficult experiences that will that the purpose of those is in lieu of his tshuva, in lieu of his repentance to be able to fix him up. This is a verse from the book of Eov, Job, 
that his friend Elihu told him, open your ears for hearing discipline. Wake up, pay attention. And the response should be that you will repent from your sin. Number six, we need to be aware that we don't have infinite time here. We don't have infinite opportunity and there is no infinite patience. And so therefore a person is given a certain amount of leeway that they can use their free will. You have to know. There is a limit that is given to someone who is choosing the path of evil. How long Hashem will let that person walk along that path and use their free will for bad? When a person hits that limit, once the person hits that limit of evil, there's no more waiting, there's no more patience, and there's no more chances, and that person is destroyed and removed from the world. Does that mean the person will literally be killed? You've reached your your limit of evil that you can do in a lifetime? and Yes. Okay, so it's, it's not talking about like the death of the soul? Of both. It, sound, it sounds like the person's just done. His, his existence is eliminated. Our sages nicknamed this phenomenon as the filling of the measure. So you have like a sack of flour that you're filling up. Eventually, the whole sack gets filled up and then game over. Another verse from the book of Eov, from Job, with the filling of the measure, he is crushed, more or less. Until a person reaches that point, until they hit that limit, it's possible for them to continue and having success in this world, even while they are acting inappropriately. Because that is in order to open the door for the person's own self-destruction. There needs, we need to be enabled. Well, so why don't we see the concept that he had just talked about where they suffer as a reminder to repent? Oh, th- this person did receive that, and they ignored it. Right? We're, we're talking about a person who is so evil that they have reached the maximum limit of evil they could possibly commit, and now they're wiped out. Mm-hmm. So yes, they did receive warnings after warning and did not heed, and they even... And, and, the amount of evil that they've done, that they've used with their free will, is to a degree that receiving suffering to wipe it out wouldn't even be enough. There's not enough good to be able to outweigh that. Mm. And this is what our sages have written, that when a person wants to defile themselves, they, they're enabled to do it. In the, in the heavens, they will let that happen. They will assist you. But when a person does reach that limit, then that's destruction. There's only so much self-destruction a person can do until they are destroyed. And then that is in fact the truth. They will be destroyed. And then Hashem's anger, so to speak, will flare up against that person and Elimination, destruction will befall them. Moving on, number 
עוד צורך לדעס, שהנה ההשגחה העליונה, בכל פרט מהפרטים משכחס על כל הנקשר בו מן הקודמים ומן המאוחרים. השם's providence does not consider only each specific individual or any specific case, but rather everything that's tied to it. Things that came before, things that come after. And it comes out that the providence that governs over all of reality takes into account all details and how they interact with each other as a system. So everything is not only dealt with according to its own situation, but also how it fits into the bigger picture. So we're going to explain what that means right now. When it comes to a person's individual state in this world, how Hashem decides where a person will be placed, what their individual uh, challenges will be and their baseline where they're starting in the system. Part of what goes into that is his level and his state that has been defined for him by what came before him, meaning his ancestors. And also what comes after that person, which is his descendants. And that what is with him in his present time, the people of his generation, or the people in his city, or his immediate surroundings, his friends. And after all of these considerations, taking into account all of that, then it can be determined what this person's role will be, what their unique individual role will be in the world. And the task will be given to him, that he needs to stand up and serve Hashem based on those circumstances. So now, what he's saying here is that a person's circumstances is not only based on their neshama or uh, their decisions that they're making, but also takes into account all of the external factors that relate to that person, and specifically things like your parents, your ancestors, people that might come after you, your friends, all of your surroundings. Does this align with the the teaching? There, there's something, and I don't remember exactly what it is, but about how um, God will basically remember the good that your ancestors did for some extraordinary number of generations and the bad that they did for some much smaller number of generations. It is related to that, right? A descendant of a person can receive goodness because of what their ancestor merited. Yes, and we'll, we'll give examples like that right now. But before we get to that, he has a parenthetical note here. He says, This, all these calculations of the external factors, that only goes into determining a person's state in this world. And this is what I explained before. He says, when a person's individual role and state is determined, how rich they're going to be, where they'll be born, what kind of family, all these things, that's all the determining factors for his worldly state here. 
So according to all of these external factors, that will determine his task to perform. Ah, however, when it comes to the world to come, a person is only judged and his eternal state in the world to come is only determined based on that person's free will decisions. That actually, all right, that's that's beautiful because that ties back into what we talked about in the, the last episode where a person has their specific role and you're only going to be judged based on that role, basically how well you accomplish your job. This is what you mentioned with, you know, the, the various servants of the king mm. and everybody's going to have, you know, their different jobs in the kingdom uh, and, and the butler isn't measured uh, you know, by how well he makes shoes or whatever right. it is. Sure. Um, so this actually, so this gives you room for the disparity that we had talked about, um, you know, wh- where everyone has a different circumstance. It allows for the complexity for people to be generous or for people to be greedy uh, and all sorts of stuff like that. But then it also doesn't hold you accountable for the things outside of your control that you were born into in Olam Haba. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is this is really the idea to distill it down. This whole world is a contrived construct. It's just designed to facilitate the only thing that's truly valuable, the one form of currency that really matters, which is choosing to be connected to God. And so that per a person's ultimate state in the world to come is only determined by how much they want to be connected to God and how much effort they're putting into achieving that. Now, how that's accomplished is based on all of the complex factors that exist in this world. And those are all determined by everything that we're saying now. Um, you know, if a person is challenged with with great wealth and all the challenges that accompany that, or if a person's challenged with poverty. We all have such challenges. Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> in the next world, you you might be grateful that you weren't challenged with such great wealth. You know, it sounds nice here in this world, but that's right. the point, right? It's, yeah. uh, it is scary. So so his point is that this whole discussion about why do things happen to people, this has no bearing on a person's ultimate judgment in the world to come. This is just how is the world set up that we're living in right now. And this is what it says in the prophets in Yechezkel, Ezekiel, that a, a child, a descendant, does not bear the sin of their father. What that really means is that a person will not be punished in terms of their own free will if they grow up, let's say, uh, doing a certain sin because that's how they were raised and that's the community that they were brought up in. It won't be held against them necessarily if... You know, unless, of course, they had the opportunity to recognize that it was a sin and change. And, and, and of course, that is held against them. But uh, your starting point, you're not judged for. Is it is it fair to say that some people are given just inherently more, like not just a greater quantity, um, but just a greater magnitude of challenges uh, than than others? I mean, it. I, I understand that the system is extraordinarily complex and only the master of the universe could possibly understand it but i mean do we have a a belief that some people are just given harder lives 
than than others. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that like, oh well, this challenge is just different from that challenge. Right. Well, the answer is yes and no. There, from an objective standpoint, yes, there there is a difference in magnitude, but it's going to be commensurate with that person's decisions, and let's say their past lives, which we'll talk about uh, later on, uh, and the the all, the real answer to your question is that all of humanity is a collective that is reaching the same goal and it is self-perfection. And to the degree that that's been accomplished and the degree that a person has chosen the correct path, it will be easier to achieve that perfection and or, or more difficult based on well, their but decisions. Less about their decisions. I think the heart of my question is more like, do some people start just, you know, way behind the starting line compared to other people are they just inherently given much harder challenges either because you know they have some great sadik of a soul or for you know whatever reason maybe their ancestors did some terrible things again the, the answer is yes and no the challenges might be greater and if you're saying if by difficult challenges you mean a more difficult life like let's say a person is born into uh, a bad neighborhood that's crime-ridden mm -hmm. and they're raised as a criminal Right? And and so their challenges are going to be extraordinarily difficult in this world. But it could be that their the expectations for how they are going to use their free will is much less. Right? Maybe maybe their goal is just not to kill the person when they rob them, hmm. and they will have accomplished a great spiritual achievement. Right? As opposed to someone who was born in, in a yeshiva system and learns Torah all day. It could be the expectations for that person is much greater because there's less resistance. Okay. So ultimately, it all evens out. I see. Um, but yeah, but how how it's determined for each person is as we're seeing now in this chapter, extraordinarily complex. So it's about the magnitude of your steps in the correct direction, and not actually how far you are. Right. It, the only thing that it depends on is the amount of effort that you exert to okay. move toward Hashem. Let's continue. Let's say a person merits, for whatever reason, great stature and wealth. Let's say based on his own actions in this world. And then he, he becomes wealthy. His children will be born into wealth. His kids didn't do anything to deserve that wealth. They become wealthy because they're his descendants. And if nothing changes, then his children will grow up as wealthy people and with high status. And the same is true the other way. So it comes out that the only reason these people are wealthy is because they happen to be descended from wealthy people. The truth of the matter is this. That a father bestows upon his children five things that our sages count, which he doesn't mention here. So it's possible that a person can be born into some good trait, something good, just for the fact that his father had already established it. And it's possible also that because of some merit that the father had, that at a certain point, this person will, something good will happen to them. Meaning not that he was born into it because he inherited it, 
but let's say the father had done some great heroic act years ago. And now because of that, that merit is paid to his child. Hmm. And by the same token, it could be that a person will be the one who does that act, and then he will merit that his descendant, maybe sometime in the future, two, three generations later, possibly, will now merit some great salvation. And is that um, like payment or atonement, you know, for good or for evil for, for that person? So, I mean, if, you're, if your father did some great heroic act, you know, sacrificed himself for someone, uh, and then later on his children receive some, some great reward because of that, now is that, is that considered payment to the father because of his connection with you? I, I'm trying to understand how this is. Not, nothing's ever payment. We're never paid back for, for things that we do. Uh, the the quote-unquote payment would just be the connection to Hashem. But these, this goodness, the merit that occurs, is a result. It's a consequence of that good action. And it's not random that it's their child. It's because a person's child really is a spiritual extension of themselves. And this is a much larger discussion, but it should make sense, at least let's just leave it at this, that we know that children are biological products. They physically are their parents, mm. genetically. I mean, their body is made from their parents. Right. So it would stand to reason that the spiritual parallel of that would be true as well, that they do... They are a spiritual offshoot, a spiritual product of their parents, and, and that is the case. So we are intimately connected with our ancestors and our descendants. We don't just happen to be related to them. Okay. And also it could be due to a person's surroundings or their friend group. It could be that a person will merit goodness because of the friends that he has. Or something terrible could happen to a person, God forbid, because of the company that they keep. So these are all factors. The complexity of, of all this is obviously it's impossible for us to fathom. And it reminds me of a conversation that we had at one point while I was at Aish, um, which is there were there were a few students who were, you know, at the point of being, you know, Hey, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that there's a God. Something created the universe, but it was hard for them to really reconcile that with this this personal God that we talk about, who's so involved in our everyday lives. And so we had this beautiful conversation um, where what really came out from it is this is the and it, it's hard for us to. It's hard for us to relate to this at all because none of us have actually truly created anything from nothing. So to some extent, it, we can't draw an analogy. But if you had created something, every molecule and atom and quark, you would absolutely be aware of every molecule and atom and quark. It would, right. You'd be concerned with it. And that's... How could you not? Right, exactly. How, why would God have created and be continuing to create and sustain the world with everything in it? Right, because part of, part of Jewish philosophy is not just that God created the world, but that existence as we know it requires a constant renewal of that energy. God is creating the world at every moment. Yeah. 
So how, how, could, how could Hashem just not care? For people that, that do take this approach that um, you know, God is too big, like why would God be concerned with all these little details? God's concerned with much bigger things than that. For someone that thinks that God is too big to care about small things, their God isn't big enough. Hmm. You know, the, we we still think about God as as being limited and finite to because we're, we're trying to project our own experiences onto that. Right. We can't comprehend what unlimited bandwidth looks like, but that's what God has. At the the more we delve into this, and the more I see the complexity of of how this goes, it's just. That's something that's it's so necessary uh, is, is understanding that God is intimately concerned with everything going on. Absolutely. That is the theme of this chapter. And we, we've we only covered a, a smaller portion of this chapter. I think it's a good place to stop now because if we split it up now, the next episode will cover the rest of the chapter and we'll complete it with part three. But I'm glad we had a chance to come back to do this. I'm so glad to be back. This has been great. Thank you, Rabbi.